Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, Molly. Jennifer, 32, California, Premium Submarine. I wanted to say that I had this aha moment where I realized that your comparison in one of your archived podcasts of life being to like one of those choose your own adventure video games, like we can choose peace, we can choose chaos. Um, this is my favorite type of game and I've struggled with like suicidal ideation my entire life. I like the Queen song that says, I don't want to die, but I really wish I'd never been born at all. That's how I felt most of my life. And not only did you help me understand that is an invitation to go on my hero's journey, but also that life is like this choose-your-own-adventure game and how much power and autonomy I have to make good choices for myself. And um, I just want you to know you could walk away from this podcast today and you already have a legacy that you are leaving that's reaching all over the world and all the people that your listeners interact with are being positively impacted by your podcast so um everything you do from this point onward is literally just bonus extra credit like i can't wait to see what happens next welcome to back from the borderline i'm your host molly and i don't want to talk to your personality i want to talk to your soul The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know it, but now you do. On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit 
that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. I want to thank Jennifer for that amazing voicemail. It really touched my heart and I love when all of you submit how the podcast has impacted your life. If you'd like to send me a voicemail similar to Jennifer's, you can do that by visiting backfromtheborderline.com. And Jennifer mentioned in this voicemail something that I brought up in one of my archived episodes that's available only for my premium subscribers, so I thought it would be fun for me to just touch on it before we dive into today's interview. My favorite kind of video game are the choose-your-own-adventure narrative-style games. And if you're not familiar with these, essentially these are the types of video games where you're playing a character and the decisions you make have a big impact on the trajectory of the story. So say for instance you're playing this zombie apocalypse-style narrative video game and you come across a decision where your life is in danger, the game will freeze, and it prompts you, do you choose action A, action B, or the third and less obvious action, which is no action at all, do nothing. And I say in this bonus episode, how often we feel like we need to choose an action, we need to react. And as I started playing more of these games, I realized how often the do nothing option is oftentimes the better route. And I don't think we often think about that in our day-to-day life either. We always feel like we need to react or respond. And sometimes the best move is to do neither of those things. And also looking at our lives through the lens of this video game metaphor can be really powerful in reclaiming our autonomy. And I thought this voicemail from Jennifer was the perfect one to play before my interview with today's guest because we really talk about the idea of viewing our lives as this drama unfolding on a stage and how if we take the seat of our higher awareness, we can actually separate ourselves from the drama of everyday life and really view things from a 10,000 foot perspective, which I have talked about so much on previous episodes of the podcast. Today's guest is Lawrence Hillman. Lawrence Hillman is a distinguished figure in the fields of astrology and archetypal psychology. Born and raised in Zurich, Switzerland, Hillman's fascination with archetypes started at the young age of 16 and has continued to be a central theme in his life and career for over four decades. He's notably recognized as a professional archetypal coach, specializing in helping his clients discover and align with their deeper purposes and life callings. Hillman's approach to astrology and archetypal psychology is renowned for its practicality and rich metaphorical insight. He integrates these disciplines to guide individuals in understanding their personality traits and life circumstances. 
His method involves looking at astrological components like moon and Saturn aspects, not as fixed problems, but as dynamic patterns that can be expressed constructively or destructively, depending on the individual's choices and actions. This perspective allows for a more flexible and imaginative approach to astrology, viewing it as an art form rather than a rigid science. Lawrence Hillman's work also extends into the realm of education and public speaking. He's conducted workshops and lectures internationally, including at the Globe Theatre in London, where he combined his insights on Shakespeare and astrology. He has also lectured on topics like Venus in America alongside his father, James Hillman, who was a prominent figure in the field of archetypal psychology, as well as the director of the C.G. Jung Institute when Lawrence was born. As an author, Lawrence Hillman has made significant contributions with books such as Planets in Play, How to Reimagine Your Life Through the Language of Astrology, and Alignments, How to Live in Harmony with the Universe. Academically, Hillman also has an impressive background holding an MBA, an MCM, and degree in architecture, alongside his doctorate in leadership psychology from Meridian University. He's fluent in five languages and has traveled to over 40 countries. His experiences contribute to a rich, multicultural perspective in his work. In essence, Lawrence Hillman's contributions to astrology and archetypal psychology are significant, particularly in how they bridge the gap between ancient wisdom and modern life challenges, helping individuals and organizations to navigate their journeys with deeper awareness and purpose. Before we dive into the heart of our discussion, I want to take a moment to recognize my podcast sponsors. Their support, along with the programmatic ads you're about to hear, play a vital role in what I do here. It's because of them that I can continue to create and share content freely, making it accessible for everyone. This is especially important for those who might not be in a position to sign up for a premium subscription of Back From The Borderline on Patreon. So as we dive into this short ad break, remember that these moments are more than just ads. They are a bridge that connect to continued free content for all my listeners. So stay with me and right after this brief pause, we'll jump straight into today's episode of Back From The Borderline. Thank you so much for your understanding and continued support. Today's episode is brought to you by Jung Platform, a unique online space dedicated to exploring the depths of psychology and personal growth through the lens of Carl Jung's teachings. Jung Platform is on a mission to make the transformative wisdom of Carl Jung accessible to everyone. They believe in the power of this knowledge to change lives, offering a wide range of courses that dive deep into topics like dream work, mythology, and the psychology of relationships. Each course on Jung Platform is taught by highly qualified instructors, experts in their fields, who bring not just knowledge, but a passion for Jungian psychology. Whether you're a professional looking to deepen your practice or someone exploring personal growth, there's something for everyone. By engaging with these courses, you can hope to gain profound insights into your own psyche, learn the art of understanding dreams, and embark on a journey of self-discovery and transformation. And here's something special for all of you listeners. 
When you visit backfromtheborderline.com and click on the link for Young Platform, you can use the code MOLLY10, that's M-O-L-L-I-E 10, at checkout to receive 10% off your first course. One little caveat is that this code is valid for all the courses except for their official certification programs. So don't miss this chance to explore the rich world of Carl Jung's work and wisdom. All you need to do is visit backfromtheborderline.com, click on the Jung platform link, and remember to use the code MOLLY10, M-O-L-L-I-E 10 for your discount today. Begin your journey into the depths of your unconscious mind. This episode is also brought to you by Pure Spectrum CBD, a company that's redefining the standard of CBD products. At Pure Spectrum, purity isn't just part of the name, it's their promise. Their products are crafted with the highest quality organically grown hemp, ensuring that you get the purest form of CBD. CBD has quickly been gaining recognition for its potential benefits, which include supporting relaxation, managing everyday stresses, and helping in achieving a more balanced, healthy lifestyle. Whether you're new to CBD or an experienced user, Pure Spectrum has a range of products to fit your needs. And here's some great news for you. If you follow the Pure Spectrum link at backfromtheborderline.com, you can get 15% off your first purchase. My favorite product of theirs is their CBD CBN nighttime tincture. I really struggle with falling asleep and staying asleep around the time of my menstrual cycle, and this tincture has been a game changer for me. But remember, what works for me won't necessarily work for you, and CBD can interact with some medications, so it's always best to check with your healthcare provider before adding anything new to your routine. So don't miss this opportunity to experience the benefits of pure, high-quality CBD with Pure Spectrum. Remember, go to backfromtheborderline.com, follow the Pure Spectrum link, and the discount will be waiting for you. All right, we are very close to jumping into our episode, but you are going to hear a short ad break. Now, these aren't your usual ads. They're dynamically inserted, much like you might encounter in a YouTube video. And I want to be upfront with you. I don't personally select these ads. They're automatically chosen by my podcast hosting platform. This setup is essential because it helps me continue making free content for those who may not have the means for a paid subscription. And don't forget, you have the freedom to listen to or skip these ads as you see fit. But just by tuning in, you're supporting the show in a big way. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. You'll now hear that quick ad break and we'll be right back to dive straight into the rest of today's episode of Back from the Borderline. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thank you for your patience, everyone. And now it is my pleasure to introduce my interview with the incredible Lawrence Hillman. Let's dive in. All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I am here with a special guest. I'll start off by asking, you were born into a family with a deep connection to astrology, archetypes, and depth psychology, thanks to your father, James Hillman. However, I am curious to learn more about your personal journey. And it'd be really cool if you could take us back to your early life and share some experience or moments that led you to realize that exploring these topics was not just a family legacy, but also a path that you were personally drawn to yourself? Thanks. That's a, a great, um, great question. You know, I'll, I'll start with a story, which just says a lot about how I was raised and what set my mind sort of in a certain way, or activated my mind in a certain way. Like, I remember as a child, if I would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, as kids do, you know, frightened and and you know and run into my parents room and say hey there's a there's a white horse in my room right so most parents would come in they would walk into your room they would turn on the light and say no look you're just imagining things and and there's no white horse here go back to sleep right or if, if it's a really nice parents you can come into our bed and sleep there that's the typical reaction my father reacted very differently to such a situation and i did the same with my kids he would walk into my, he would say when i came to the bed he would say really White horse, oh my God, that's the coolest thing ever. I love white horses, let's go see. And I tell you something, he's, he would say, I know that white horses really like to drink milk. Let's put some milk in there so if the horse comes back, we will, we will, um, you know, it'll have something to drink. So we go to the kitchen, put some milk on a plate, put it in the room, and then and I'll go back to sleep. And before you know it, the white horse will come back. Really cool, so I go back to sleep. And the morning, of course, the milk is gone and it became a real thing. So that's acknowledging the imagination and the psyche in a way that is very different from saying, look, you're just imagining things. In fact, the thing, the image is what's the most valuable in that story. It's the white horse and what does it want and what, is, what might it like from you and things like that, as opposed to denying it. And, and fear is just fear of the unknown. So once you get to know the horse and do something with the horse, it becomes rich. So that was kind of the way I was raised. And I also went to a Steiner school, a Rudolf Steiner school in Switzerland, that really helped me with, you know, I learned mythology and 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 uh, and and uh, and fairy tales and these kinds of things, you know, from a very early age in a very rich way, and that gave me access to imagination and to my uh, own creativity very early on, and really helped. So that was that. And then my mother was actually interested in astrology when I was sixteen. She sent me to a family friend. I was kind of bored with school and 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 not very, you know, engaged. And she said, why don't you, why don't you go learn astrology with this family friend who was an astrologer? And I'd known him since I was a little boy. So I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, I was 16. So I went there, sat down with him and 10 minutes into my first lesson, um, I knew like a flash, I knew immediately, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life it was one of those extraordinary moments that some people are lucky to have. 
and it's been true so you know that was 46 years ago i'm 62 now and it's still the thread that runs through my life for everything that i do as a way of seeing the world it's not about anything else it's, it's about understanding and meaning making of of the world that's around us and that we 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 live in in relationships and things like that so it's a, it's a way of thinking it's a way of seeing so that's kind of it and and you know my father was a huge figure in my life and probably why I didn't become a psychologist you know from the beginning and instead went a different path of of uh, of astrology um but it was always a psychological astrology it was always a depth psychological astrology it was always an archetypal astrology and i think very natural and very easily um the way that he did and and you know when i read his books it's like second nature because i was kind of as someone once said to me you were marinated in depth psychology as a child and it's a really good description so it's a way of thinking it's a way of being and also fertile soil to then create my own work that that is you know that that stands on the shoulders of of, of that work it's interesting because I've interviewed a couple of other guests who had parents who are deeply into depth psychology. And I said the same thing. I'm like, you were swimming in that soup from a very young age right. where it's interesting you telling your story about how your dad reacted to your kind of existential childhood fears because I grew up in Wyoming to parents who they, they just, they again, they did not grow up swimming in that soup. And so I was a child that kind of scared the shit out of my parents because I was asking really big mm. questions. What was I before I was born? What happens after we die? And I really freaked them out, I think, um, understandably. And so, and also the reaction I got was, why are you asking about that? Don't think about that, right? And so from a young age, I went, what's wrong with me? I guess I'm really weird for thinking those things. Do you? What's your reaction to that? Because I think that probably makes up the vast majority of my listeners. That what happens when our parents respond to us in that way? Not to shame these parents, because again, they didn't grow up in, like this. Right, and they don't know what they don't know, and so you can never. Bl and I'm not interested in blaming. I'm not interested in blame psychology. I find no. that really boring. Um, <laughs> I'm interested in compassion. So the compassion will be to say, you know, that's their limitations, which means we have all the possibilities in our lives to go beyond their limitations, stand on their shoulders. What were the gifts that we got from them? Because there's always gifts somewhere. Beautiful. Um, you know, what, even if they were horrible parents or died when we were born, you know, um, there's still a gift and the gift may then be, um, you know, resilience or uh, survival or finding my own path or whatever it may be. There's a gift in every story. And so, I'm I'm curious as to how we can not blame them or point a finger at these parents for not having done whatever they we think they should have done based on some psychology textbook. Yes. But rather, um, but rather um, think about them, imagine them as as being exactly the parents that we needed. As my father once said, we get the parents who mess us up exactly the way we need to be messed up. It's the complete opposite of the way most psychologists and therapists think today. And I think that's extremely liberating because, you know, I ask myself with anybody who shows up in my life, especially perhaps my parents and my siblings and, you know, the closest family members, I ask myself, what are they doing in my play? And it changes the role because if you think of it as a play or a theater, you know, what is their role? What are they here to do? Are they here to challenge me to go out and find my own way? Are they here to help me? Are they here to support me? Are they here to to um, 
you know, cook for me, whatever it is that they their role is, these these friends, are they here to listen to me? Are they here to learn from me? What is their role? Um, whoever we choose to have in our lives, you know, what is their role? And what is my response to them? Um, which is my choice and my free will. And if I and and if I blame them for my for being a victim, then you know, then that's really my story. I think there's three ways to go through life. It's kind of a philosophical approach. The first way is to say things happen to me, life happens to me. That's victimhood. You know, things happen to me and it's this one's fault and that one's fault. And if I'd only this or only that, my circumstances, you know, define me and so forth. That's um, that's a victim. The second one is I create life. You know, it's all about me. I have to go out and do. I have to be a hero. It's a very American fantasy. You know, if you look at the rest of the world, that's a uniquely American viewpoint. You know, take your gun and go west, young man, is an old American idea. And, you know, take what's yours and manifest destiny. And all these ideas are all about ego. That's ego. It's me. I'm in charge of my life. Nobody's going to help me. I got to do it myself. That's kind of a thing. That's ego. And the third way, which is obviously the one I adhere to or try to adhere to because I don't like the first two, is one that says the universe is already happening. The world is already unfolding. My job is to not only pay attention to what is unfolding, but to also then co-create with what is already present. That's a different approach. It's paying attention to what's already there and then figuring out what my gifts can most help with in co-creating this reality that 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 is unfolding. That's a that's a approach of of being part of and co-creating. That's beautifully put and it it reminds me of an Alan Watts lecture I was listening to and he was saying, you know, it's all just a happening. And I think that's really hard for people to understand because I think that my neighbor just chose now to uh, leaf blow their lawn. So hello, everyone. It, it's I've all just those. a happening. It's all I've just got, a happening. Right, exactly. And so, and so, um, but you see, and if you think synchronistically, then that event is important. We would, you know, there's a famous story of Jung and the scarab on the, on the, someone's having a dream and he's talking about and then this, you know, a scarab and then this bug shows up on the window. So it looks like a scarab. So, you know, what is the hot air that's blowing around? What is the leaves that need to be tumbled? What is the, you know, I think about life all the time like that. That's what's happening. Exactly. It's beautiful. It's a happening. And, and we are here to, to pay attention to what's happening and then to co-create with that according to our own gifts. I'm interested to hear you. And again, listeners, this should be over soon, this, this devastating noise, but we're just going to push through. Um, your father's book, The Soul's Code, because you kind of said, I want to dive into this concept of, you know, we're given the parents, we're given the family that, that we're meant to have. And I think people that are really stuck in rock bottom moment, they have a hard time with this because they can feel like, oh, I, cho I chose to be sexually abused. I, I chose, right? And but reading that, I think you have to be at a certain point in your journey to find that concept liberating. Can you explain a little bit about that uh, concept for the mm -hmm. listeners and how if they went through, I just had, you know, standard emotional neglect, you know, my parents really did the best with what they could. Both my dad came from a really abusive home and I think he, he took the ball as far forward as he possibly could with us. But some people went through absolute hell. So how can they reconcile that concept of you chose your parents with that kind of upbringing? Because, because when 
because we we can't think of it from an first of all i fully understand that that sounds like a really privileged place to come from to say that and i know i came from a very privileged background i get all of that however if we start from a place where we say you know it's all about me if we come from a self perspective that it's i who am a victim here, or I who have been, you know, done that, it's different than the way when I say we choose the parents. When I say we, I literally mean we. I mean the inner parts of us, for whatever reasons, those parts need to be activated in certain ways. I am fully aware I've done, I've worked with people for 46 years, and I can tell you that I have seen probably anything you could ever imagine as far as horrors in, in families and what people do to each other and so forth. It's extraordinary to me. So I'm not naive to those things. And, and and I realize saying something like that can be very evocative and really um, angry-making for some people. Why the hell would I do that? Why would I ever choose that? And there is a place we can get to in a deeper place, you know, at moments of deeper reflection, where we recognize the value of lessons and of learning. And if we value learning, then we can see that there's a learning in just about every event that we ever experience, even the most horrible. So, you know, I have been there, I have experienced, I lost a daughter who was 24. So, you know, I've been to places that other people can only imagine. And it didn't, cha it didn't change my belief system at all. It didn't make me feel like a victim at all. I have a very strong understanding of how the universe works. And so I had my own system to hold these experiences. My point is that that um, there is a value to look at experiences more from a distance as though it was a play that's going on within us and that these characters were attracting these people, sometimes monsters, into our lives. What is the value of the monster? And what is the value? What, is the, what does the monster contribute to the story? That's to me a more interesting question than pointing a finger and saying, I'm a victim because that person abused me or, or hurt me or did horrible things to me. Of course, those things are all true. But the perspective of that, there's a monster in my story. And what does the monster contribute to the story? To me, is a much more interesting question and allows for possibilities to create and do something with it. If you were writing a children's story, if there was no monster in the children's story, kids would fall asleep way too early. Isn't that the truth? You know, that's given me something to think about myself because, I mean, reading The Soul's Code was very liberating for me, reading it at this point in my journey. Michael from Third Eye Drops actually told me to read this. He's like, you have to read it. I think it's really going to help you because I'm navigating, recovering from a lot. I experienced years of grooming and I think uh, online uh, from much older men, older attractive men when I was a very young girl and then which led to multiple instances of sexual assault. But it was very difficult to unravel because I had convinced myself that this was much better than being with guys my age, right? And so I, it wasn't classic sexual assault in the way that you would see in a movie. It was very psychological, like I was groomed and abused and then it led to this. And now at 34 years old, I look at people and young people who are 14, 15 years old and to think of, to even imagine them in a sexual way viscerally makes me sick. And so it's like only just a couple of years ago, did it actually click for me saying, oh, I was abused, right? And so it sent me down such a spiral 
And I thought, what did I do to gravitate those kinds of people to me, right? And you saying these these monsters are kind of monsters, not that these people were monsters, they were also people with their own traumas and it was all part of the play. But seeing it in that way helped me open my eyes to realize all of this, I wouldn't be sitting here right now talking about the, the things on the podcast that I'm talking about without those things happening to me. I always say without the traumas, what we just be like these positive little happy amoebas just floating, like how boring would that be, right? Absolutely. You know, Molly, I always say, show me your scars and I'll show you how deep you are. Right. You know, that's that's where we get, that's where we really get the depth. And by the way, a um, beautiful example of the, of the, uh, 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 what you're saying and, and also, you can make your story even richer by thinking about it as a as a myth because the right. myth there is there's a classic this is a universal story of the beauty and the beast ah. and and every culture that i've ever looked at has a form of this story in it and you know aphrodite venus young maiden persephone Persephone is a different version of it, uh, and her abduction of the underworld certainly is another story of the beauty and the beast. You could think of it that way, but also um, um, Aphrodite herself was married to Hephaestus in Greek mythology. Hephaestus was the was an ugly sort of older sort of smith. He made the weapons for the gods, and he had a, a you know a lump foot. He sort of limped, and he was always sooty and dirty, and you know, and he was married to the goddess of beauty. This connection of of beauty and the beast is an archetypal one that exists in every culture and so if you think of your story like that what was the initiation what was the again you couldn't be where you are today you just said that and now there is value even in the horror and that is the change is to make the is to um is to you know, this is a topic I want to bring up several times today because it's so key to my heart. It's one I learned from my father, is to rejoin soul and symptom. You know, that's the thing. It's in that place of wounding that we meet soul. And we meet real experiences that are uniquely, universally true and also in ourselves. And so that is the, that is the, that's, that's life itself. We are all looking for that. Why do mm. we cut ourselves when we are desperate? Because we want to feel something. We are so disconnected from feeling yeah. anything or the pain that we're feeling is so bad, but so undefined that we want to make the pain visible and real. Those are all symptoms of a disconnect between soul and symptom. Oh, that every episode that I intro, I say that I want to help individuals see their symptoms as saviors, because mm -hmm. the definition of savior is one that saves from death or destruction. And what you just said really, it, and there's a quote, and maybe you'll know who said it, it's escaping me now. It's like, you know, the wound is where the light comes in. And all of that just is a perfect pivot I think to our little pre-chat before the the episode before we started rolling into the idea of archetypes and also our current view right now in the biomedical model of psychiatry and mental health of you know right now through the lens of the biomedical model we see symptoms as disorder or disease of the brain of the personality and for me and i think you share this perspective but we're going to have you elaborate on it it's 
viewing our personalities as some kind of cancerous tumor that we can like numb into remission is not helpful, <laughs> nor is it very empowering. And right now, interestingly, I think that we're seeing the tide shift when it comes to this, um, even though there have been people like yourself and like for decades, I just, I've been diving into this on my premium episode of the podcast, this book from the seventies that took me forever to find. It's called like the radical therapist. And it's just this, this conglomerate of therapists in, in Minnesota that were putting out these books. And this is before social media, right? So these, these radical therapists are trying to put out their manifesto, but now it's much easier for us to demystify all of this stuff because we're so connected. You talked about we're disconnected, but we're so connected at the same time. It's sort of a, a head fuck, as they say. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about, from your perspective, how do you view this biomedical model of mental health and how do you think it actually might prevent healing? And just go ahead and just riff on that. I'd love to hear you talk about it. Well, first of all, it doesn't work even though there's a whole industry that pretends that it works, it doesn't work. There's a famous, um, uh, you know, uh, interview book that my father did called, we've had a hundred years of psychotherapy and the world isn't getting any better. You know, this is, it's not working. The model that we have used is not working. Um, and the model that we have used is essentially, uh, you know, split between mind and body. It's the idea that, that um, you know, you can, you can fix the mind by fixing the body, all these kinds of, it's, it's just, it's a very, very distorted view of, of, of what it is. A beautiful, you know, masterpiece and probably my father's best piece is worth reading if somebody's more interested in this on a much deeper and greater level. It's called, you know, Revisioning Psychology. It is James Hillman's masterpiece, I'm, I'm, I think. And it really goes into this in greater depths than we ever would have time for in it. And, and, you know, but it, it really goes through it very clearly and, and beautifully of what the problem is with the current model. It's a revolutionary piece and it and it and, and and it is getting finally, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, much more traction as the world changes and we just realize the other model doesn't work. But there are plenty of people who are drugged out, who are zombied out, who are just incapable of function. I'm not against medication. I think medication's tool is to make us capable of doing therapy. <laughs> um but it's not an end all. You don't go to the psychiatrist, get a pill, and then go home, and then that takes care of it. And now you can work, you know, operate. Um, there's a place for medication, but um, it's not the end all. It's not the solution. It's not the silver bullet that will that will fix the problem. There's a soul in there somewhere screaming for help, and if that is not addressed, it cannot be addressed with a pill. <clears throat> so, um, the longing, um, the longing of the soul is to be recognized and to be um and and if we pay attention to the symptom and again we rejoin soul and symptom then we can start to get a sense of which part wants to be spoken to when you are um you know looking for approval as a 14 year old by an older man I would be curious um, to know what is going on with your inner um, sense of beauty, which in archetypal thinking would be your inner 
you know, anima or your inner lover or your inner Venus, whatever, whatever label we give to that part of you, but what is going on with her for needing or wanting or longing for connection? That's essentially what she does, longing for connection. So then the therapeutic path would be, um, you know, what would be um, a more suitable way for a 14-year-old Venus to express herself in the world and then seeking the attention of older men? That to me is a much more interesting question and a, and a practical approach to the helping professions than say, you know what, what is more age appropriate for that? And, and um, what would be, you know, in your current developmental stage, this is probably a great way to express Venus. And suddenly you realize that if you're dancing or if you're painting or if you're standing on your head doing yoga or if you are beautifying your room or, um, or um, you know, having crushes or anything that is archetypally congruent with the expression of the Venusian energy, that those are appropriate places for the energy to go. What we also know is that denying an archetype or an energy or a feeling or an emotion is, you know, I love the movie, you know, Footloose for that. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't suppress this stuff. You can't pretend and, and, and Bible thump it out of people. <clears throat> and so the question is, are you going to give it a, a, contemporary expression in society that is actually useful not just for the person but for society as a whole and that is a that requires an awareness within the person um, who is the parent for instance in your situation that is you know that takes some some learning and that's not for everybody and so we get situations like you had unfortunately and and um that just takes it takes the learning of a language of the archetypal language to start to see how the world operates on a deeper level and not get caught in the behaviors and therefore go deeper into the into the levels of meaning making it's really interesting that you share about these archetypal patterns and i i'm having realizations on my own just from what you shared that i'm going to have to do some active imagination with later cuz i never really thought of that in terms of, you know, how else could I have expressed those things? Because clearly there was something in me and I needed, I wanted to feel seen and beautiful and loved. And I just took a path. I took a path, right? And right. again, still, I think that that path was the path that I was meant to take. And if maybe if I would have been, you know, the child of, uh, someone with more spiritual wisdom and like depth psychology and all of this, I would have been encouraged in those things. But I was always my energy, especially growing up in middle America, you know, I, I was a very, I think, threatening personality just in general. I didn't do well in school because it was very much like conform and I was too much. And I think that the vast majority of my listeners, the amount of listeners that write in and say how much they relate to that feeling of, I was always too much, too emotional, too extra, as they say, right? And I had so many, I had such deep feelings and there was nowhere for them to go. And so like, I just exploded and I took that and I, I used to be, I mean, I won a, I went from winning a young author's competition at like in fifth grade for doing a rewrite of the myth of Osiris and Isis, which is just so fascinating, right? Given about what all of that is. It's just like, I really think about that a lot. And then 
to what I say as shoving myself in the hot girl box. I was watching Paris Hilton on TV. I was watching all these things. And I thought, okay, this is what I have to do because all I wanted was to be seen and accepted. And I felt like such a weirdo. And it was not cool to be into mythology and stuff then. You were really treated like a nerd, you know? Like, and so I just felt like I'm not accepted at home. I'm not accepted at school. I need to try to be as hot as possible. And that's what I tried to do. And it always felt like I was shoving myself into a box that didn't fit. And it, and those repressed emotions just turned into like psychological toxic sludge, right? And then it started manifesting in my body. I started getting sick. I started getting chronic infections. And so when I read, when I read all about this stuff, you know, about how the body kind of keeps the score, it really resonated with me. And then as soon as I started doing this work, as soon as I started, I, I found Marion Woodman's work pretty early on. And that really changed my life because of her whole addiction to perfection thing. Cause I was also overwork perfectionist. And I just started doing inner work and then slowly, but surely I had to move through the grief. And you talk about, you know, you're not into blame psychology. I went through a huge phase of really blaming my parents. I was so, so mad at them. And tying this all back into the medical model, I think that some of this stuff, it serves a function. It's like, I can understand how someone might be empowered for a moment with a BPD diagnosis because they're going, ah, that's what's wrong with me. It's like, but, and with parents, oh, my parents fucked me up. That's what's wrong. But it's like training wheels on a bike, you know, eventually you have to go off on your own, right? <laughs> Again, yeah, it's a it's a mindset, and there's a consequence to thinking um, in, with blame because when you're a victim, you have very little power, and you have very little control. Because guess what? You can't change the past, and you can't change those things that were horrific in your life. However, if you change the perspective and you say, "What were they doing in my story?" It suddenly becomes much more interesting. Well, because like you can say now, because you have a longer story and more content. And context, you can say, well, you know, I wouldn't be where I am sitting here talking to me um, if I hadn't had these um, these horrific experiences. Thank goodness I had them, or I wouldn't be sitting here, you know. Um, and and so that's the gratitude, that's the silver lining that takes maturity and time. But how many times will we heard, you know, people say, you know, this most horrific thing happened in my life, but if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have all these things that I have now or all this awareness that I have now because it 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 sort of shook me to to you know to awakening trauma is often an instigator of tremendous awakening as well not just I'm um, shutting down it reminds me of for speaking of archetypes it's like the wounded healer archetype I spoke to yeah. uh Bruce Levine he is a fantastic radical therapist <laughs> and um really close with people like robert whitaker right who've really who's the owner or a uh, man who started mad in america who's very very into this critical psychiatry discourse and bruce was basically saying that you know so many therapists out there that are practicing they haven't been through the underworld times and not. so how can you lead you someone through a place yeah yeah right. what are yeah. your thoughts no, on that exactly no, of course you can't. You can't. Um, I mean, here's the simplest analogy for that that I use for that one. You know, how can there even be male gynecologists? Cramps? What cramps? I mean, it's it's ridiculous. 
I'm sorry, but that to me just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, so um, you can argue that, well, we can this and that. And of course, you know, there's famous stories about this. I mean, I'm a trained architect and famously many, many architects who design kitchens, you know, never cook. Well, you can't really design a kitchen if you don't cook. It's, this is a universal problem. So unless you've had the experience, unless you have, that's why I said earlier, show me your, show me your scars and I'll show you how deep you are. So if you're a therapist and you're fixing people like an auto mechanic, um, based on, you know, what's broken can be repaired, then, um, you know, you might have never had, and, and, you know, more power to them. People go with great intentions and beautiful, you know, ideas of healing and helping others and so forth. But there is some, you know, the most important book for anybody who's in the helping professions to definitely have on their desk. It's always on my desk, wherever I sit. It's called The Power of the Helping Professions by Adolf Guggenbühl. It's a great book. Power of the Helping Press, a little bitty book, <clears throat> and it show and it really addresses this issue of power because when you're a quote unquote a healer, doesn't matter what profession you're in, but mostly this speaks to you know therapists because it's not as clear when the healing has happened as it is if you have an ulcer and now it's gone. <laughs> um, you know there is a there is a um, there's a real issue here, and there are many 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 degree programs where you can get a degree without ever being in therapy. And I just find that absolutely shocking and and terrible. It's why I dropped out. I I early on, and it's the irony of me being an L being in an LMFT program before I had done any work. I basically did it because I'd got myself. I was so in such a dark place. My music career kind of fell apart, and I found myself working in like sex work in LA, which was basically just working underground poker rooms. It was really dark time. I saw like mm -hmm. the dark side of the male psyche to the max, like mm -hmm. a bunch of celebrities. I mean, it was from now, I'd love to go back there just to like psychoanalyze my way through that situation, but I did not have the tools then. But I said, screw it, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna get my, I always was interested in psychology, but I started this LMFT program in this basic online university. And I dropped out because I just said, what, these are the people that are gonna be helping others? Like there were people typing in the online forums of do I have to treat people that are gay because I don't believe that you can be gay. And I was just going, oh my God, what the fuck, get me out of here. Right. So like I dropped out <laughs> and yeah. I, yeah, I had like a year and a half of straight A's in that program of my, and maybe eventually I'll finish it one day, but I just was like, then when I learned about Jungian analysis, I was like, okay, to do this, you have to go into analysis yourself. That makes a lot of sense, you know? My question for you, Lawrence, is based upon where you're sitting now, what you know about depth psychology, but also being privy to the biomedical model, are you optimistic about where you're going? Do you, or about where we're going uh, culturally with therapy? Do you think that things are changing or do you think it's gonna be more of the same? I think there's giant changes afoot, and I mm -hmm. think I'm very optimistic because of those changes, because I think that this gets into a deeper conversation. Yeah. And I'm going to start it with a very simple idea of left brain and right brain. I am very aware that, that biologically the whole brain is involved in most decisions and ideas that we have in our head and so forth. I get the biological of it, but as a term, as an expression, as a concept, left brain, right brain is really useful because just about everybody understands it. Yeah. Essentially, if you're stronger left brain, then you do, you know, you're better at math. And if you're stronger right brain, you're better at English. Really simple idea, but it's very prevalent and most people get it. So the world, certainly since 
the Enlightenment has been increasingly, and especially, like I said, with Descartes, you know, the famous Descartes. Descartes I think the therefore I am. Mm -hmm. Right. If it is rational, if it is left brain, it is real. If it is right brain, it is imagined. It is just in your imagination, the way people responded to the white horse, typically, right? Mm -hmm. And that white horse metaphor is true in culture as a whole. Just think about how we use language. You know, that's just a myth. Myth is actually just as real and just as powerful. America is a myth. The myths are powerful, real things that we live every day. Mm. But the way we use the language, we we denote the not importance of so many things. And so um, it's subtle, but it, over time, you know, left brain thinking has taken over. So it runs everything. You know, science is left brain, it's logical, it's data driven, it's decision based. That's how decisions are made. Of course, we should not support this because the money isn't in it. And rationally, we're not, you know, so all of these sort of decisions are made all the time based on left brain decisions. I work a lot with leadership and, you know, most leadership today is left brain and data driven and and evidence based and these kind of things. That's how science works and everything else. It's wonderful, except it's soulless. And the, <laughs> all, the other problem with it is that it is also lacking any kind of right brain part of it. Yeah. In other words, right brain is emotional, is creative, is dreamy, is fantasy, is receptive, is listening, is is soulful in that intuitive, sort of Intuitive, right? In, intuitive, all those other things that you can't measure, right? Yeah. And and people say, well, if you can't measure it, it's not real. Well, that's kind of silly. What about trust? You know, trust yeah. is kind of important. You can't measure trust, but everybody knows when they can trust somebody. Where does that come from? How do you know trust? Love, these kinds of things. But trust is easier to talk about than love because love gets all, you know, um woo-woo for people but trust is something quite practical in business all the time how do you mm. measure trust you don't but you know when you have it and you know when you don't have it so these kinds of things are are very real but they're not they're not left brain yeah and so back to your question um you know the medical model has gone completely into left brain and we have achieved fabulous results with that you know i would love to go to a surgeon if i break my leg mm -hmm. i would love to go to you know um uh, to get all kinds of procedures that are that are scientific and they're great absolutely wonderful but it's only half the brain and why would anybody want to operate with half their brain as we know um, you know, we talk about, well, there is the, um, you know, there is the, the art of medicine. Well, that gets a little bit more woo-woo. Yes, there is that intuitive thing, the doctor who just has a feeling about what you're presenting and then finds the cancer that would have killed you if they hadn't taken you to the, you know, these kinds of things. And, and famously, there's a study that I looked at once about, you know, the intuitive ability of nurses that they're actually really, really good at, at, you know, sixth sense or firemen have a really good, I don't know, is it fire people today? I don't know what how to say that. <laughs> but, um, you know, firemen have this, you know, sixth sense that there's still somebody in the house. These kinds of things are very, just as real and just as valuable. Just we have put them aside and said they are wrong. They are the white horse. Look, it's just your imagination. And so there's a price for that. But here's why the world is changing rapidly and why I'm so optimistic. We have gone from a complicated world and complicated to me is a car. A car is complicated. It's got a bunch of very simple things. For instance, it has a windshield wiper system that has a pump and a couple of blades and a motor and something to switch, and that's how it works, right? If something mm -hmm. goes wrong, you replace the hoses, and now it works again. Mm -hmm. And all of those simple things together makes a car that is complicated. But the car isn't complex. 
The difference between complicated and complex to me is the complexity adds emergence. Emergence are things that happen, like suddenly the car would have five wheels. That would be emergent. That doesn't happen in a complicated system. <laughs> and then you would have to adjust to that. And so emergence is just, there's so many things that happen that we can't, that we can't predict or can't know. So for instance, COVID is a good example. And there have only been a few really, truly global emergent events. But today, almost every event that is significant, like the wars that are going on, the, the you know, COVID, these kinds of things, because of the internet, because of the global family that we now have become so strongly, you know, emergence is a real part of everything that we do. And so if you're a leader or just a regular human being, you have to take into consideration a much more complex world because emergence is happening all the time. Okay, the cool thing is, that emergence is a right brain capability. Complexity capability, dealing with emergence, emergence isn't a capability, but the ability to deal with emergence mm -hmm. is, or to deal with complexity that is that includes emergence, is a right brain capability. You cannot handle complexity with your left brain. No matter how much data and analog thinking you have, you will not be able to handle emergence. That's a different skill set. Therefore, if you want to be a, a, a future fit person, you must, you have to develop your right brain and become complexity capable, which means becoming right brain capable, which means becoming more imaginative, more creative and so forth. And by the way, just over the last couple of years, AI has hit everything and everybody and AI does left brain way better than we ever will, way better and way faster. And while people think AI can do right brain, it really can't. It can mm. do left brain really, really well. It can take a ton of data and analyze it and come up with new you know, ways of putting data together, which is a left brain thing to do. It's mm. linear, essentially, just extremely complexly. I mean, complicated linear. So complexity capability is a right brain capability, which is why I think that the linear models of healing also are hitting their wall hitting the wall and just people are realizing that's not enough and so we need complexity capability and by the way accessing right brain is hugely popular right now look at the rise of psilocybin and all the mind opening gets get back to things that we actually can do every night when we fall asleep yeah. we all know how to get into our dream world and into our imagination we all long for creativity but we've been staring at screens so long that we think that you know we can't generate from inside out it all has to come from outside in yeah. but what you generate from inside out what emerges through you what comes through you when the universe speaks through you that's when you are being in your right brain and creative mm. and that's where healing is going very very rapidly on all levels which is why astrology is seeing such a, a, a comeback with all its all the crap that is there as well i get it you know everything that yeah. that has a has a moment gets its um you know has its has its shadow side of course it does and and pop psychology and all of that i i see all that as well and yeah. i'm very optimistic because there's this right brain emergence that is offering people access to their own creativity and imagination like we never have because guess what if we don't we're out of business as human beings and so yes. this is what is required to survive and that's getting into everything including the healing modalities which is uh. really cool adapt or die right you know mm -hmm. i was just talking to my husband the other day and i i'm a big fan of of chat gpt and all these ai models i think it's fascinating mm -hmm. and so many people are like oh what do we lose with it and i'm like 
these models can only be as effective as the person who's using them. If you are an incredibly creative person, an incredibly right brain person, then you can be so effective with the help of these models. Like for me, it's helpful where I can put to put the whole um, you know, I read an article like, because, and then instead of having to take notes or whatever, I can take tiny notes and then just say, here, give me the top, like organize this information into these chunks. Right. I use it to help make me into a creative super person, but I have to be creative to use them. And you have to be able, it's all about the questions. It's very Socratic. I've heard that like, you know, chat GPT was kind of created with like some of this Socratic dialogue built in. So if you're learning from Socrates, if you're asking shitty questions, you're not going to be getting very great answers. Right. Exactly. So I have, that's something that I've been throwing around in my brain a lot. And I find it now it's interesting that you're talking about the idea of emergence because i'm currently um working with my spiritual director and she recognized or rec recommended rather that i read this book um by stanislav grov called like spiritual emergency and i'm sure he's also a depth psychologist i'm sure you've heard of him course, and yeah, i know him yeah yeah, yeah. yes he, i mean he's still alive right a much <clears throat> older gentleman i think he's like in his 90s now and he I love that what I, I just do, I'm doing an in-depth episode, like a four-part series on his concept of this, because I, what I gather from all the voicemails, Lawrence, that I get, the emails that I get, just, I get such a wave of thing, of, of correspondence from my listeners and it's spiritual starvation. They know there's something more, but they don't know what it is. And now there's just it's a great thing that there's a lot more spiritual information available. And this takes me into my next to actually perfectly into my next set of questions for you. But then I feel like it's also, again, everything has its shadow side. And right now there are a lot of predatory people are sensing this spiritual starvation and they want to make a quick buck. And I also think they're not always, they're not monsters. And I wish it was that simple, but it's not. There are people like, for example, I have a girl that I know that I went to high school with and she does not listen to my podcast, nor does she know I have one, I think, but she's selling like these divine feminine breath work healing things. She's never done a day of depth psychological integration work in her it's entire a life. It's yeah. A and she's selling it for $444 cause it's an angel number. And, and, you know, and I'm going, it makes me sad to see this stuff because then what I see, and I know this because listeners email me, they're like, I don't want to see shit about spirituality because it's either Abrahamic religion telling me about I'm a bad person or, or it's new age spirituality saying it's complete spiritual bypassing. And so this brings me to my next question because you have all this incredible expertise in ast astrology, which is an area that I actually haven't gone into because it's a whole it is such, there's so much there. Um, I mean, I, I buy grimoires and I, I like look at all these things and I know the average person, there's just so much more to astrology than the average person realizes than just your sun sign. Right. And my question for you is astrology is often simplified into these generic descriptions in popular culture. So how can we as individuals harness the depth of astrology's wisdom without succumbing to this oversimplified superficial interpretation that are so prevalent in mainstream media and pop psychology and like how can we better spot the red flags right that's a great question so um this goes back into 
right brain capability and complexity capability. One of the things that complexity capability and right brain capability gives us is, is the understanding of The, compl the complex nature of any question, that there's no simple black or white answers. That's a, that's a left brain kind of a way. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's digital, it's this or that, right? It's black or white, you're with me, you're against me. That kind of thinking is much easier. I hate you, I love you. You know, it's, there's nothing in between. Where we're seeing this biggest fluidity right now, which is freaking people out, is with gender fluidity. There's no more just boys and girls now. There's all kinds of things in between. So that's a really interesting shift for me because that's a that's such a mind blow for so many people that they don't know what to do with it. So they become radical about it and yell at people. But that's their own incapacity to deal with their own complexity capability. Because if you think about it naturally, of course, there's, you know, why should there only be two genders? It's ridiculous. Why should there only be people and no aliens? You know, these kinds of thinking are so it's, it's all based on fear and on small thinking. Of course, there's more than meets the eye to everything. And so the, 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 the complexity capability here is to think about that our multiplicity applies also to how we see ourselves. And this is really the key of this whole conversation for me. Western thought, and especially since Descartes, you know, the church has been fighting this inner multiplicity before, long before Descartes, for hundreds of years, fighting against, you know, gods and multiplicity and, and many gods and trying to, you know, force, as you said, the Abrahamic singular god down our throats. And that has been going on for a very, very long time, and it influences everything how we see, because if, if man is made in the image of God and God is singular, then we cannot be multiple. And as soon as we are multiple inside, then um, we are schizophrenic, we are, you know, we are uh, multiple personality disorders, we have some kind of a label because we are all these different things inside. Meanwhile, every single person wakes up in the morning and has conversations with themselves in bed. I think I could do this, now I should do that. I want to get up, now I really want to lie here longer. Simple stuff like that. All day long, we are arguing with ourselves. We are having this ex experience personally every minute that we are multiple inside and we are talking to ourselves and having conversations and arguing and thinking, do I want to go out with him again? No, I don't know if I should because I saw this red flag, but actually I love him. These kinds of things. This is normal human behavior. So for you know, a long time, for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years, we've been telling ourselves that's wrong because you are only a singular person. You only have a singular one identity and that identity should be clear. And any other parts of you speaking up are therefore part of an illness, a disease, a dis-ease. You're not at ease, okay? Not true. So the first thing that is happening is that, you know, you talk about, do, am I optimistic or not? As you sort of asked me before, you know, the, 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 one of the fastest growing directions in psychology, besides the, the rapid growth of archetypal psychology, is parts work, is parts psychology. And, you know, internal family systems, and there's a bunch of others, and, and they all have their own pluses and minuses and these kinds of things. But essentially, there are ways to give voice to these voices. And that's great. So that's, to me, what archetypal psychology does. That's what archetypal astrology does. It gives some structure and some order to this inner chaos of a play, you know, that, that, is, that is kind of us. There's a, a, a lovely quote I have in, in one of my books. Um, 
by, uh, let me just find it, it's right here at the beginning, but it just talks about this, this sort of theatrical, you know, inner, uh, inner mess. And I should, one day I should actually memorize these quotes because they are good. This is, um, this is from Charles Simic. He was poet laureate at one mm. point. We do not live most of the time in exalted states. The content of our stream of consciousness is usually not so lofty. Our psychic life is more like a squabbling, squabbling theatrical company trying to rehearse a play we don't even know the name of. <laughs> you know, I love that quote. Yeah. So this inner mess, that's how we experience ourselves. We got this voice, that one. That. Okay, yeah. so what astrology, all astrology does is to say, this sense of chaos or just of everything, you know, all over the place is universal, has been there forever. People have been trying to and using different models to create some kind of order in the total chaos. Mm. You know, the beginning of the Bible, the first line is, you know, out of the, you know, the beginning there was tohu vavohu, which means chaos, right? That was the beginning. <laughs> and so we come from there. And then the Bible is one way to try to create some kind of order. Mm. So what I've maintained, why I like astrology is because if you think about it, there's very little in life or in the universe that is completely sure. In fact, there's almost nothing. I'll tell you something that is absolutely sure. I can tell you exactly where any planet is going to be in 27.657 days from now. That's measurable. That's precise. That's exact. That gives a sense of structure that I know. Mm -hmm. That's why, because of that surety, you know, humans have always set their calendars by the movements of the sun or the moon, because that's for sure. We know the sun's going to come back to where it was. That's, that's a safety. In fact, the, the beginning of religion was worshiping that sun coming back every morning because that meant life and we wouldn't die. Oh, yeah. So so this idea that we, ha we have some kind of order that exists in the universe by the movements of the planets gives a structure that we can use to... Mm if we are people who are seeking some kind of structure in the psyche. The key idea in astrology is that there's no separation between us and the universe. We are all part of it, or as many have said, we are stardust, literally. And so, you know, this connection between the universe and individuals and plants and stones and everything is part of this universe is pretty chaotic. Hmm. If I try to understand, even though science tries to create structures and orders and does very well in its own ways, you know, physics looks at it a certain way and, and geography looks at it a certain way and geophysics looks at it a different way and so on. The different ways of looking to give some kind of structure to the chaos. Astrology goes at it by saying that the structure that we're using is the movements of the planets because they're cyclical, they are measurable, and they are reflected because they're part of the system that we are part of. They are therefore also in us. So it's not that the planets are doing something to us. I'm not a, I'm, you know, Pluto doesn't move around and then my head, my arm starts moving like a marionette. But it is affinity. And so what happens in one place also happens in me. So if there's tension in the sky, there's also tension in me. Hmm. because I am a reflection of what is part of everything else. I am part of it. I'm not separate from it. That's the key idea in astrology. That takes right brain thinking big time and is therefore not easy. And that's why, you know, it's been shunned and poo-pooed from, from, from any kind of left brain um, point of view forever. But it doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's like trust. Can't measure it, but absolutely it's real. So astrology is very real, but it is complex. It is highly complex because we go at it typically from a left brain perspective, which doesn't work. 
And the average person doesn't want to go in, like doesn't want to take the time, right? They want want Vogue magazine to tell you what as a Sagittarius your day is going to be like today. Exactly. And that is sad, but it's understand. It's entertainment. Yeah. I read sometime columns. It's entertaining. It's fun. Every astrologer I've ever met reads sometime columns. Do you read them sometimes and go, Of course. It's great fun. It's entertaining. (laughs) But I don't think about them as as telling me anything about me that I didn't know. But it's because we all have a longing. It's an archetype to have a longing of some kind of divination. That's just a human need and longing. So if we read tea leaves or, or pay attention to synchronicity or these kinds of things, that's all exciting. You know, it has to mean something. Man is in yeah. constant search. Man and woman is in, are in constant search and everything in between to be yeah. fair to the multiplicity. We are as human beings in constant search for, um, you know, for meaning making. Yeah. And, and we find it in the simplest places if we're simple-minded and we find it in more complex places if we do the yeah. work of actually learning a few things and studying a few things. That takes some work. Yeah. It's much easier to say I'm an introvert or I'm an extrovert. That's two, that's two possibilities. You know, or saying I'm one of 12 sun signs, that's 12 sun signs. Yeah. Actually, every astrological chart is unique. There's no other chart like yours in the world. And so yeah. it is like a fingerprint. Now, to understand that and to read that is takes much more time and work than it does to call you a sun sign, Precisely. which is simple and entertaining and fun. So it's a choice. You have yeah. a choice. If you want to go to the depth of what it can offer you as far as insights, it is mind-boggling and, and, and lifelong of learning. I've looked at my chart for 46 years, and I can honestly say that I know maybe half of what's in it. Wow. You can never fully know your chart because it is a lifelong learning or exploration. And, and, you know, um, in fact, you mentioned Stan Groff. He has said that archetypal astrology is the Rosetta Stone of the psyche. And it is that powerful of a statement. Think about that for a wow, moment. Wow, I was about to say, that's, that's about yeah. as... Uh... It, is, it, is a, it, is a, it is a decoding language to understand the complexity of the psyche because it gives structure um, to something that is very unstructured. And so that helps us as human beings. We look for that. That's what science does. That's what yeah. um, music does. That's what, you know, all these different forms, they give structure to the the, the unstructured. And for my listeners which, that don't know what Rosetta Stone is, event, event is like in millennial Gen Z Zoomer language, that's basically like saying astrology is the major key. Like it's, it is it. And, but again, it's only a tool and you sharing about, you know, obviously this discourse around identity is like front and center in, in cultural discussion right now. And I find it, I find it incredibly fascinating because I can't, I can't say that I've had the experience of someone who's transgender or dived into that world, but I can speak as someone who tried for a very long time to alter my body surgically. I got breast implants in and out. They made me very sick. I got all sorts of different injections in my face, which I then dissolved. And it was a very expensive, painful process. I was on six different psychiatric medications. So I know what it feels like to kind of go down this pathway of being like a lifetime medical patient. And I have have two very close friends who are uh, trans individuals who have been living their their lives as the opposite gender. And something that I have had in-depth conversations with them about, and I think you might, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this. Obviously, you and I, we are not living that life, so we can only speculate. And I always say that whenever I'm speaking on the podcast, hence why I don't dive into this topic much because it's not, I speak to my lived experience. And, but what my trans friends and I have had a conversations about is 
And these are also people that are interested in depth psychology and all this stuff too. And so they're just going like, it's interesting as like an elder trans person to look at what's going on right now with the youth of today, where just because you say that you are XYZ gender, that doesn't mean that you've done inner work, right? You, you could be, you can, you can say that you are a certain label, BPD, right? We're, we tend to cling to these labels and think that's the answer, right? Like we've got it figured out now. That's great, but it's part of the puzzle, just like astrology is part of the puzzle. And that's what I've had these beautiful conversations with my friends about is they're like, I, it's great that you're finding that out, but also don't just stop there, right? Like there's so much more. You're unpacking some really important things. I want to get back to this, but I first want to get back to your previous question, which I didn't yeah. really answer, which is how do you know, you know, the, the red flags the stuff? Yeah. 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 So the first thing that I would look for is what we mentioned earlier is, you know, has this person been through their story? Have they actually suffered? Have yeah. they been to the bottom of the barrel? Have they, have they had experiences so they can even relate to what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, they need to have, you know, astrological skills, obviously, to know the language. They need to have psychological skills to talk about those languages, you know, that language. And to, that's a whole different skill set because you can be a great astrologer and horrible at psychology and then really <laughs> hurt people. Yeah. Um, um, they also have to have skills um, in communication, which is a, you can be a great psychologist, get what's going on, great astrologer, get what's going on, but not know how to talk to people. That's a whole other skill set. Yeah. And then you need to have life experience. Again, the more you've suffered, the better. Show me your scars and that. And then the last thing is to be professional. There are people who are very unprofessional, but hey, let me sit down and chat with you a little bit. You know, let's talk about your chart. You know, I'm the, so all of those things. So what I'm going to suggest is to ask for references for people's personal experiences. That's always the best thing. I would mm. not just find somebody. I would, I would, I would listen to what people say. If they do interviews, I would listen to if you if you agree with how they talk and if you like what they're saying. It's a, again use your right brain to make this decision, yeah. and not just um, yeah they're giving me the stuff that I want to hear, or they're they're telling me a simple thing, or they're you know there are a lot of really really good astrologers out there, yeah. and a place to start to find good astrological learning if you want to learn about this. It's a language if you want to learn this language is a place called Astrology University. It's a fabulous place. My friend Tony runs it. I think they have the best teachers in the world there. And that's where you will find authentic, really good astrologers who have done their own work and, yeah. and you know, know what they're talking about it to a global audience and, and from global teachers. So I would start there and okay. go to the, to, the, to the sort of the, you know, the better resources, but then ask your friends, see who's had a good experience with an astrologer. And it's all word of mouth in the end. It's not going to come from an advertisement. I agree with that. I'll link to that. that about, yeah. And the second thing, just I really want to jump back to that. It's so important. Mm. Um, is the uh, you know the 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 depth and mm. and and getting to the bottom of um, of what we see and what we experience on the surface. So I think of a three layered cake. It's a very simple metaphor. I use it a lot. Mm. And some people stay in the top layer all their lives, and that's okay. The top layer is behavior. It's what people do. It's measurable. It's repeatable. It's observable. You can see it. You can, um, you know, you can Instagram it. That's behavior, right? This is what what we see. It's top layer of the cake. Some people never go deeper than that. Some people go to the next layer, and they want to know why are people doing what they're doing. And there, we can use a variety of lenses. 
we can use, let's start with the psychological lens and let's start with the behavior of anger. So people can say, well, people are very angry. Um, um, people, this person is very angry. That's a behavior. I can see it. I can measure it. I can see their pulse going up and their eyes getting, you know, pupils getting big, whatever. And we can psychologically on the middle layer of the cake, we can say, well, people are angry because um, when they were young, they were hit and they were bullied. And so now they're angry, right? That's a psychological lens to explain anger. You could use a different lens. You could use a cultural lens and say, well, we live in an angry time and everybody's angry because everything is polarized or that everything's strategy. You know, there's too many rich people and, and to, you know, the, 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 too, the smallest number of people own too much. You, whatever your, your policies, your ideas are, that is a historical or, or a financial or an economical. You can have different reasons to explain the behavior. But you're asking a question, which is why are people that, um, you know, behaving a certain way? I want to go to the third layer, to the bottom layer, which is an archetypal layer. The archetypal layer says, which archetype is present when people are angry? Mm. It's asking a different question. And you can say, okay, well, that would be the warrior in my language, which in astrology is called Mars. And you say, okay, so Mars is very present in our time. And then you can ask yourself, um, and then I can say, and here's where it gets interesting, on the archetypal la layer, on the archetypal level, this is a universal experience because the warrior experience is an experience that we have always had in every culture throughout history all the time. Many people today have a very negative um, association with warriors, especially women, because of experiences like you've had, because of experiences of um, of violence, because we live in a you know boy boys club kind of a world, and because of all these reasons, a warrior has a very bad reputation. Meanwhile, there were Amazons in history. Meanwhile, warrior stands for things like being focused, being targeted, having clarity, um, you know, being clear of separating what you don't want to have in your life anymore, cutting out things you don't need. There's all those things that are really positive warrior. There's no good or bad archetypes. What happens is that through culture and through all these different layers in between that we just discussed, we get from the archetype to the behavior. And so if we teach each other and learn the archetypal language, I can go to a different culture. And that is how you can relate to your trans friends, because you can say, hey, I'm curious in your experience of the world or in your part of living in Timbuktu, you know, where is how is, does your culture, your family, your personal experience express this warrior? Because we are in agreement that we have that archetype, all of us in us. That's the archetypal model. And that's what astrology says, is it says, look, we all are born under a sky, in fact, under the same sky. It looks different, but it's the same planets. And so um, we have the same 10 inner archetypal and all archetypal astrology says is that the planets are looked at as archetypes meaning universal ideas or principles or energies so the warriors in everybody the lover is in everybody the nurturer is in everybody the sovereign is in everybody these are universal understandings the storyteller and so on so you're tapping into a system that is incredibly old and incredibly powerful and every major culture throughout history has created their astrology which is a way of 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 creating order in a very chaotic um you know experience we call life 
So this is the this is the way that you can relate to people. That's my point. Is that we don't have to say, well, I can never have their experience. You right. can never have their behavioral experience on the top layer. That's true. But you can mm. absolutely have their experience, and therefore, suddenly, we realize that archetypes are a language that unite us, no matter where we go. We have people practicing our model, you know, in uh, what is it now? I just looked it up the other days in, in you know, in 11 countries and and in, in um, you know, nine different languages and, you know, and all over the world. And it's growing very, very fast because it doesn't matter if you're in Vietnam or if you're in Germany, you're talking the same language when you're talking archetypes. You're just yes. talking about how they're culturally expressed differently. And suddenly we have a universal language that brings people together rather than I'm this and you are that and we are therefore different. This is the key gift that Archetypes brings us is that it is a universal connecting language in a time of great separation. And in a time of flattening of things. You're giving mm -hmm. me so much room for, for food for thought because that's where, again, these great conversations I've had with my friends is I'm just going like, out. Oh, the you can often see at what point can we allow for gender nonconformity? At what point can we, rather than flattening, this is what it means to be a woman, this is what it means to be a man, right? I I spoke to my own experience of feeling like I had to shove myself into the hot girl box, right? Because I grew up in the early 2000s where to be a girl, it was like Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton. To be a guy, it was like Nickelback videos or, you know, the rap videos that I watched. It was so boring, quite frankly. And like so many people, no wonder we're at this place where there's this feeling of like, this is not enough. Right. And I can so understand like people that are young people that are struggling with their identity and saying, I don't want that. I don't want that flattened, boring experience. And, and also as a woman, I can really relate to not wanting to be that stereotypical version of a woman. Right. Because when I tried to shove myself into that narrative, it was the unhappiest I've ever been. And now that I'm realizing that I am all of it, right? And that it's all about balancing those energies within myself. And I can present myself in one way today, another way the other day. And you're helping me realize too, I think some people, doesn't matter what generation you're from, there's this ontological shock that's collectively happening, right? Because people... And, and by that, for listeners, I mean just when our worldview is confronted. And just because someone is choosing to, ex to embrace their multitudes, it's like confronting the people that have lived their life in these really repressed boxes. And they're going, no, you have to live your life like this too. It's like when there was about to be student loan forgiveness and people were like, no, if I had to pay my student loans, you do too. It's like, it reminds me of these things. I'd love to hear those. Are, it's just a bit of a rant on my part. I'd love to hear your reflections or no, reactions exactly on that. that. There is great, there is great fear because if you live with singular identity in mind, then you have to answer the question like, what is it to be a man? What is it to be a woman? Um, you know, it is impossible to do that in a multiplicity kind of context because it makes no sense. You are just, you're picking a tiny little piece of an iceberg, not even the top of it. And there's all this other richness and you're starting to recognize it and you can spend your whole life trying to shove it down, like playing um, wakamo, you know, trying to hold these things down that keep coming up in your dreams and in your relationships and in your experiences and in your news feeds and everywhere. And it's just like, holy crap, what do I do with all of this? Well, you start to embrace it all because it is all you. 
Yes. And you have the capacity as a human being, because you were gifted with the right brain, you have the capacity to imagine yourself in all of this and to swim in this richness and to enjoy it and to be multiple and to have all these different, you know, avenues. It will take some learning. It will take some, some, just like anything else, you know, when you started to ride a bike, you have training wheels. You start, like yes. you said, you start, you start simply. You don't, you don't, um, you know, jump on a Harley the first day. You you want to be on a two wheeler. Yeah. And so and so we we learn these things, and that takes time. I've been doing what I do for you know forty six years. We also live in a culture where where you know we want instant gratification, instant, and and we don't value anymore the hard earned work that it takes to learn something well you've had to go a very hard route to get to where you are you've done a lot of studying and learning and thinking and interviewing and and reflecting and using ai intelligently to help you with that process that's all what it takes and so people who are listening to you and who say you know i want what she has this is really i can see i can relate to the richness of what she's offering me i know she's speaking to me in the way that i hear what she's saying are also going to have to do some work it's going to take some studying and some and some focus and also some shutting out of some of the noise that's coming yeah. from the people who want to put them in boxes that's right because because um you know we are all in our own ways complex unique and different and nobody's more different than someone else that's kind of a silly joke and nobody is more um, interesting than anyone else that's also kind of a joke <laughs> everyone is what's what's interesting is to find the complexity in every person and to be curious curiosity is the biggest gift you can bring to the world today it's like be curious how are you how is your culture subculture whatever it is expressing these archetypal energies in your particular group that would be that would expand my knowledge one of the greatest things I learned when traveling was that you know you can do simple things like brushing your teeth in lots of different ways i saw kids in bombay brushing your teeth in the gutters it kind of blew my mind i never thought of it that way obviously it's sad and it's depressing and all those things but it's also a mind blow because it's like okay i never thought that you don't brush your teeth by standing at a sink with a toothbrush there's other ways to do the same thing <laughs> and so that's going to take flexibility and openness and also a certain you know focus yeah. on on not being influenced by those who want to tell you to shut that down and direct experience with life right like going g figuring out where your intuition leads you on your own because the best thing that i ever did was start to tune out mainstream social media because just like with ai it can be as powerful as you want it to be social media and our connected world can be as powerful or destructive Absolutely. as you want it to be yeah. and it's a tool yeah, like my YouTube algorithm is a perfect example. Like <clears throat> I can show my old YouTube algorithm and it was just like how to do your hair, how to do your makeup, how to do this. Like, are you, a, is your, is this person a narcissist, right? Like just, ugh. Now my YouTube algorithm is like lectures on platonic thought and all these different and Joseph Campbell and all these things, but it, it's a reflection of where my intuitive, like, thread has taken me but i've had to cultivate that you can't just wait for it to be spoon fed to you and that's why i always tell my listeners like the last kind of email i ever want to get is you've saved my life like i want to get the email of wow what you shared gave me such an aha moment and then i typed that in and then i found my own rabbit hole 
that's what I want. And what I want for my listeners too, is I love watching all this like gender non-conforming stuff going on because I know like my, my, it makes me so happy. I mean, what I want to tell these young listeners is like, you don't have to pick what you want to be right now. You know, like you're going to keep on changing and you don't have to say, this is who I am. Like keep experimenting, keep, I think that what we, I talk about this with my husband too, what I feel like we're falling into, we need a little bit more of the rebellious nature because I see that the young generation is falling into this very like policing, like putting themselves in these tight little boxes and literally only looking at what the social media algorithm is dishing up to them. And it's making them like quite boring and scared and, and pigeonholed into these boxes. Exactly. Exactly. And they are, they are, you're offering them a gift by demonstrating to them that there is a pathway that's different. Yes. And I encourage your listeners, you know, to, to do exactly what you said to if you find something has moved in you, then you're already taking the first step. Yes. Because, you know, I think that the number one archetype that we all need to embody and learn how to embody of these multiple parts that we have, the number one thing that we're going to need to become future fit and even to survive as individuals in this new world is the renegade, which is, you know, think of it as the third finger part of you, right? That says, you know, screw these boxes, screw these labels, screw these, who are these people? Where are they coming from giving me these this authority? It doesn't mean, it's. I'm not saying the same thing as violence. I'm talking about a questioning of authorities, like in the 60s, like says who? Yes. And why? And what is their motivation? And what do they want from me? Do they just want yes. me to be, you know, to to get their hands in my pockets, which is, you know, the Facebooks of the world? What What is it that, that where I'm just a piece of data that makes someone else money? You know, what, what wait a minute, you know, it's like, <clears throat> where is my soul in all of this? And your soul in all of that is in this multiplicity. You have it all. You have all these different parts in you because you're born under a sky and those planets are in you and those archetypes are in you. However you want to call them and label them. You are rich and you are multiple. And those who are recognizing that and saying that out loud by saying, don't define me, they are talking about not that they're against being defined as the wholeness of it. They're they're against being defined as one of them, which is again, singularity. You're made in the image of God. That's a a singular thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're the holiest and the highest and we can go destroy nature and animals because we're higher than them. That's an old model. And that's a hierarchical model that the humans are at the top. And rather we're saying, no, no, actually we're part of a much more complicated ecosystem of different inner voices. And this gives us richness and beauty and clarity. And so my curiosity, my main leading archetype at that moment would be to ask you and everyone else I come across is, how are you living these different parts of you? And that enriches me because I see, oh, it could also be done in that way. I never thought of it that way. Well, I mm-hmm. could also do, you know, warrior by by whatever. So that's exciting. And that's so enriching true. and that's learning from each other. And you're making me realize that we are living in this, like, it's the most exciting time, but I feel like it's almost the most dangerous time too. Like I told you, I read a lot of grimoires and things and this woman that I very much love that reads a lot of this stuff and she's created <laughs> her own kind of online mystery school training. Um, her name's Josephine McCarthy. And she basically says like, if you dabble in some of, some of this stuff, which she's referring to like ceremonial magic, but if you can quote unquote, blow yourself up psychologically, if you're not ready to uh, dive into these things. And I, I find parallels in what she says with 
what we have access to now. It's the same reason why people say AI could be the end of us. And it's not because AI is going to take over. It's the fact that like right now, I feel like we're at a crossroads as a human species where it's what we make of it. Like we have all this access. We have all this information. Like what are we going to make of it? Are we going to blow ourselves up or are we going to integrate and expand? And like you said, understand that we are all connected. You know, there's a famous quote by um, my favorite, um, you know, author to quote of all times, which is, um, of course, now I can't think of him, um, Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he says that the famous one where he says, you know, the, the, the reports of my death have been highly exaggerated or something like that. You know, <laughs> the, the, the reports of my demise have been highly exaggerated. I feel the same way about all this. There is, I, I have a book somewhere called Apocalypsia, which is like the fantasy of the end of the world. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember Y2K, but I mean, everybody. Oh, was yeah. Curious. This was the end. Lawrence, was the I end. was terrified. I was I 10 yeah, and exactly. like I didn't have the ability to like exactly. understand. I was so scared. Yeah, and that's just <laughs> one. But I live in St. Louis and there was a time when my wife made us the whole family leave the city because some idiot had predicted, a, you know, the, the big earthquake in St. Louis. And so we all left and almost had a, a, a an airport. We went to Detroit to visit family. We, the two planes almost collide, uh, crashed on the on the tarmac when we were landing, and I just thought this is so funny. So you leave there, you know, to go <laughs> to go there to almost get yeah. killed. So yeah. you know, it's just like so. I mean, there have been countless reports of the collective demise yes. that are just really, really tiresome. That does not mean I don't take um, you know global um, warming and all the things that are happening you know tremendously seriously. Sure. Of course they are real. <clears throat> but let's not, uh, my favorite Bushism, let's not misunderestimate the power of you know um the power of the human spirit yes and and what we need to do is break out of these boxes as you said that's why we need the renegade because we need to turn off the the labels that are being put on us all the time and and how we are being you know marketed and just become data mm. and and reconnect to soul and we do that by checking out our multiplicity by being curious by asking questions to others by being involved and by doing our own work. You know, yes, I am a believer in navel gazing and doing our own therapy and figuring out what our own history is and, and what our own suffering is. But let's not stay with that, because if you stay with that, you're a victim. Right. But instead say, okay, so all of this has made me, and as these were all players on my stage, and they have made me richer because without them, I wouldn't have these wrinkles. I wouldn't have these whatever I have that have made me who I am. And so fantastic. Now I can move forward and I can really listen and be curious about others and ultimately in that path, find what I'm really here for, which is ultimately my calling and my purpose and what I signed up for rather than spending my whole time reflecting on all the things that went wrong. What a waste. Yeah, it's so true. It's, it's really, that's so beautifully put. And you know, ties into my last question that I had written down for you. And it's sort of your final words, I think, to the listeners. And then I'll end with giving you the opportunity to just plug what you're working on now, what's next, and where listeners can find you. But the final question I had written down for you was, in your writings that you discuss the concept of awakening consciousness. And I think a lot of people, it's another thing that you hear awakening, we're in the process of awakening. It's a very, it's been pop psychologyified. but how can individuals initiate their own awakening process and what role can archetypes and depth psychology 
play in that awakening, especially for people, Lawrence, who are listening to our conversation and they're like, whoa, this is a lot. Like, where do they begin? I want you to speak to the listener who is so confused about their identity, struggling with like feeling empty and meaningless and spiritually starved and all of these things. What would you say to that listener who is just kind of paralyzed and knows that they want more, but they don't know where to begin? Great question. I'm really glad you bring it up because I get that as well. And it's easy for us to have these lofty conversations yeah. with people just feel <laughs> left behind or, yeah. or feel like, you know, misunderstood or not seen or something else. So absolutely. So it's a very simple, um, very simple thing. It's the thing that I said to my daughter when she was in college and trying to figure out what she wanted to study. I, I, I didn't want to tell her, I think you should be this or I think you should be that. But I kept saying to her a simple Latin was like a mantra. And I just said to her, find your passion and your degree will follow. Find your passion, your degree will follow. And, she, you know, in the beginning, it was like the eye rolling thing. And then it was like, okay, I think you make sense and all that. And one day she called me up, she said, I found my passion. This was in this, her second year of college. She had not declared, you know, and she's taking general stuff. So I was very, very moved by that. And she is incredibly passionate. She's got a fabulous job now. She's incredibly happy. What did she end up doing? She has a, she has an MSW and she works with, with, um, essentially justice reform and Incredible. with um in policy and uh, as a as an analyst for um for uh, a consulting company that helps uh, jurisdictions basically do social justice better and do wow. prison reform better and do all this work because she's doing some really important and wonderful work wow and um very proud of her but my point is that she found her passion and and so people say, well, I don't know what my passion is. And I've had, I've, I've done, you know, I do readings for people. So I've talked to people in their late teens and I've talked to people in their nineties and everything in between for decades. And people say to me, well, I don't know what my passion is, but then you start to think about it a little bit more. So, you know what, I'm very passionate about how I butter my toast in the morning. You know, that's a passion. What does that mean to you? And you start translating that into what would that look like if you did that on a daily basis? And what would that really be? Maybe it's about how you, you do precision on something or precise something, or you really like food or you're very particular, whatever it is, and find the passion because you'll never be good at anything else is the bottom line. You'll be an, a robot in everything else and just making a buck and getting a job. And so it's about the passion more than the job title. The job title and the career are all secondary. It's doing something on a daily basis that you're passionate about. That's important. If you're not passionate, if you're just making a buck, then, and you might be, you know, then, then that's, you can be, I have plenty of clients who are, you know, actors. They can't make a living at it, so they serve tables. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, you know, good for you. It's an honorable living. But their passion and in their mind and in their heart and soul, they're actors. So there's nothing wrong with being an actor and waiting tables. So what you do and what your passion is doesn't necessarily have to be exactly the same thing if it's not because you live in a culture that doesn't support creativity or artists. Meanwhile, I'm finding that people like yourself are finding amazing ways to make a living um, coming out of, you know, um, the, working for the man. And I think that's really impressive. And to me, that's a very exciting new thing. And that's part of each generation finding its own ways of, but there's a possibility today with the internet and with connectivity and with um, personal marketing and these kinds of things that people are doing to do things that were never possible before. So we can no longer blame the system. We can no longer blame, you know, um, our circumstances. Again, we can't be victims. We have to find our passion and we have to co-create with the universe with that passion that we bring 
to the world because it's already happening how do we co-create with that that is the that is the learning for me so that would be that would be the way to start where to go and actually do the work there's lots of different paths um again if you want to learn astrology as a language to understand you know what the hell's going on or wtf in the world today that's a very useful language to do that and and i've just given i've given you the resource of astrologyuniversity.com you know for that i teach master classes in astrology if you're advanced you know in with astrology i do that there's a bunch of things that you know that are available i'm teaching all the time i have a bunch of books out um you know, uh, you know, uh, go out and find your own way, find your own path. It's always good to have teachers, but you know, you can't learn how to play golf from a book. Um, you you have to go out and actually play. And so, you know, practice something, do something till you get better at it. Even if you're a total amateur, part of the problem of 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 you know a generation that was raised that we're all winners. You know, your generation, everybody got a trophy at the soccer game. That's a problem. Because no, that's not how the world works. You get out there, it's like, oh wait, people aren't rewarding me for doing shoddy work. I actually have to do something good. That takes practice. You know, you have to hook that egg, you know, a hundred times until it tastes absolutely perfect. And that takes experience and practice. And so be willing and and humble enough to know what you don't know and to keep at it and to have that stick to and know that you don't just enter a career, you start, you know, at the bottom for the most works. And, and those who start at the top, like the child actors, you know, they usually fall apart by the time they're 20, because, because, you know, you hit you, you, it's not natural to maximize at the beginning, you will learn something, there's that steady sort of climb of knowledge and wisdom that comes with time. And so, and so, you know, keep practicing is a really good word, which means failing. That's not failing. That's actually doing well. You know, Edison famously said, I didn't um, make a thousand mistakes. I figured out a thousand times how not to make the light bulb. And so um, that's the learning is move ahead with the passion. Find something, find somewhere, work in a field that you're interested in, volunteer in a field that you're interested in one hour a week if you can't afford anything else to work you know as a as you know in a in an animal hospital because you love animals whatever it is wherever the passion is do something of actually doing the work to see what it's like because if you're if the hairs aren't raising on the back of your neck if you're not you know ready to jump into the fire to do something you'll be bored out of your mind and feel really empty i couldn't agree more with that and interestingly i started this podcast talking about BPD, which this podcast has taken the most massive pivot. I started my very first episode with a crappy microphone, free software on my computer. No, I didn't spend, I didn't have the money to do it. I'm working in a tech job that I wasn't very passionate about. And I, one of the first things I said into the microphone was like, I don't know if anyone's going to be listening to this. And like, I went back and listened to that episode that I just did two and a half years ago, you know, never would I think I would be talking to you, you know, never would I think that I could be resigning from my tech job six months ago, talking to James Hillman and, and then finding this path. But and I was at rock bottom, but putting my heart into something and then also like helping other people, the universe started responding back to that, you know, like, and I believe in that now fully. And I, 
I know the privileges that I have, but also some of my listeners don't know is like, I don't come from a lot of privilege. I know that I'm a white person and I'm a conventionally attractive woman. And fair enough, there's a lot of privileges that come with that. But I was born in a trailer, right? In the middle of America. And I didn't have, I had to do sex work to be able to support myself for a while and all these things. And then went into a job that I didn't like. And then I just had to, lots of people in my family said, don't start a podcast. Why would you go and share all of this stuff? Like, that? don't do it. Don't do it. And I just had Why would had you study this. English? You know, why would you study English? You can never make money with it. I, yes. All those things are so common, right? And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, yeah. your story is so beautiful there because, because the word privilege is often um, used as a defense. Well, I'm not privileged, so I can't do X, Y, Z. You know, the the the... N- I get it and I'm privileged. I get I get the whole privilege conversation. I understand that. But it's not useful if it doesn't help you get in the directions of your passion. That's what's more important. Privilege is a side piece that's important and we have to respect it. There, yeah. But we want to really understand the importance of the passion. And if you use that, well, I'm not privileged as an excuse to not talk about your passion, then you're missing the point and you're putting your energy in the wrong place. <clears throat> so, Precisely. Because then you're essentially saying, if I only had this, so we're blaming someone else. If I was given this or if I was given that, it's from outside. It has to be an internal process. For some, it's harder than for others, perhaps. But we don't know what's going on inside the souls of men and women. So we can, you know, on the outside, it may look it's harder for some and easier for others. But that has a lot to do with attitude and not just just with circumstances. There are so, people who have the, the most perfect circumstances that never get anything done. There are people who have absolutely the most horrible circumstances and they get extraordinary things done. I always allow my guests to finish off with, number one, if there's any final words you'd like to leave with the listeners. And then second, how can my listeners find you? What's a good way for them to like baby step into your work? How can they connect with you? How do you prefer that to happen? Say for their like, oh, I want to work with Lawrence or I want to dive into his work. What's their best avenue? into that so thank you for all of that so the simple line that i want to end with is you know what i said to my daughter find your passion and your life will follow you know find your passion your life will follow and and be open to the unexpected directions that that might take because the life is just the results the passion is what matters so that's the first thing and as far as to getting in touch with me it's just lawrencehillman.com and the, you know what i do is there what i offer is there and if someone's going to touch me they can get in touch with me through the website and i'll be happy to talk to people and 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 help people in whatever way that i am able um my teachings and my trainings my books is kind of you know how i speak to the world and these kinds of interviews um but i'm here to serve and i'm here because i'm curious about people you know my great passion is that i really am curious how people are living their archetypes and that has brought me far i work with organizations if someone is in a leadership um position and you know dealing with uh, leadership problems which is incredibly common today with turnover and can find people and all the usual complaints um i don't believe corporations are the enemy i believe that um that corporations are a way that we organize ourselves so that themselves they're not an entity they are just the way people have chosen to organize and that's those structures are changing they used to be very top down and and you know um, patriarchal in their model and that's no longer working and with uh, with remote work and everything else we have a completely different model i'm really interested in that i work with leaders on how to he- work with that and you know 
and manage that well and be productive as a team and some things we have to do alone and some things we have to do in groups and connect and so people have to organize you know you can't build a car by yourself you need a team to do that and so um yeah i'm interested in these kinds of questions i'm interested in in what are alternatives to hierarchical organizations i'm interested in people's development in people's learning and i'm available to talk to anyone who has something to say that isn't, you know, just a, a, a um, you know, a, a, a tagline, you know, if someone has an interesting question or an interesting point, then I'm, I'm very curious. I don't want to be talked at, I want to be talked with and to, um, but um, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here, Lawrence. And I will be sharing in the show notes all the links and the books that were referenced throughout our conversation for listeners. So thank you for being here with me today. And thank you, Molly. And really thank you for, for what you're doing for the world. Thank you for sharing your own story so openly. And, you know, again, we see your own depth through your own scars. And that's enriching for all of us because that's how we relate as human beings. We we show that the, um, we're back to, you know, we're back to where we started. You're, you are an example of how, you know, you rejoin soul with your symptoms and you start to recognize the value of that. So good for you. Thank, thank you, you for that. Back from the borderline, <laughs> the title of the show. All right. Yeah, thanks, Lawrence. It. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, my lovely listener, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lawrence as much as I did. As I mentioned before, if you would like to connect with Lawrence or dive into more of his work, you will be able to find all the relevant links in the episode description. If you'd like to unlock ad-free episodes of Back from the Borderline, as well as hundreds of hours of additional bonus content, you can do that by visiting backfromtheborderline.com and joining my Patreon community as a premium submarine. Premium subscribers get all of that bonus content. I also often upload episodes a day or two early for my premium subscribers. And you'll also gain access to my private voice notes where I get a little bit more personal with my recovery journey. Also, don't forget that if you'd like to dive into more of my writing, you can subscribe for free to my Substack, where I release occasional articles and musings about my recovery journey. That can also be found at backfromtheborderline.com. If you'd like to share with me how the podcast is impacting your life, you can leave me a voicemail through my website as well. As you can tell, lots of goodies there waiting for you at backfromtheborderline.com, so go ahead and check it out. But that's it from me for today's episode. Never forget, anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.